Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 139 is where we'll be this morning. Psalm 139. This is our The God You Long For teaching series. And this morning we're going to look at the fact that God is everywhere. Not to be confused with pantheism that says, that falsely says that God is everything. And so it's important to make that distinction, but God is everywhere. As we've said right along in this teaching series, let me give you once again the thesis statement for this teaching series, and that is great theology leads to healthy psychology producing in us soul-satisfying doxology. What? What is that all about? Healthy, uh, great theology. What is theology? Anybody know? Study of God. Yes. So it's a study of God. So as we study God, and not just as a concept, but as a reality, it begins to transform our psychology, so, so who we are, when we begin to understand the, the God of the galaxies and how much He loves us and to what extent He went to, to save us and to rescue us, it brings healthy psychology. You'll never be healthier than when you begin to behold the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you begin to have what you desperately need, acceptance, security, and significance. And then that produces within you, it's, it's natural and normal, it produces within you this soul-satisfying doxology. Anybody know what the word doxology means? Anybody? It means worship. And as Ryan Cook uh, said here in the worship set, in our uh, song set there, he said, our worship rises or falls with our concept of God. And so to the degree that you are captivated and smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus, so therefore it begins to transform your life. You can't help but but want to worship him and keep him at the center of your life. Anytime that you are experiencing inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression, it is because at that moment you are forgetting who God is and who it is that walks through your day with you. So the most important topic that you could ever study is God. That's what we're talking about here. We're really focusing in on his attributes and, and his nature and what he's up to in our lives. God is closer than you think and is more eager to connect with you than you could ever dream. And in fact, it is not God but us who needs to show up amid the clutter of our lives. The invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good is to you. That's an invitation for us to experience God. I'm convinced of this. I know that many of you are convinced of this, that there is not a a more satisfying venture, uh, purpose, passion in life than than to to know God, to experience Him, because He He is our most satisfying reality. In Him is infinite and eternal joy. You'll never, now listen to me, let me say it, Everybody look up here. You'll never, ever, ever be more satisfied than in God, in knowing Him and walking with Him and experiencing Him. And so we're going to talk about that this morning as it relates to that God is everywhere. I think it's something we all struggle with. How many ever struggle with the fact that it doesn't seem like God's anywhere to be found in your life? You feel like that sometimes? So we're going to talk about here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today, and we do not come to you based on our righteousness, but based on the righteousness that has been given to us, each one of us, through your Son, Jesus. 
that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this morning we boldly come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. And I know, God, there are those that are here this morning that need to know your presence in their lives. It's been a while since they've had a a sense of, of, of your touch in their lives. Uh, specific to their needs. And so, God, meet us at that point of need this morning as we open our hearts to you through the study of your word. May we see you and savor your beauty and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at Psalm 139. So this is where we're headed. A phenomenal psalm. It's just, this is one of those psalms that I'll go to when I kind of feel like, one of many psalms that I go to when I don't feel like I don't sense God's presence. It's just a concept. It's not a reality in my life, and I'll go to this psalm. And in this psalm, we're going to learn here that God's presence is an unavoidable, unavoidable reality, unbearable threat, but also an unspeakable, glorious joy. And then we're going to kind of walk through that. How do we, how do we bridge the gap between the concept of God being everywhere to the reality in our life here and now as we walk that out? So let me begin reading. As you can see, we're not going to read completely through our text. We'll take a section at a time, then we'll talk about it, and then we'll take another section and kind of work through it like that. You can see as it's divided up there on your notes. So I begin reading Psalm 139, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. What he's saying there is that he knows my thoughts before I'm going to think them from afar. Before I even the thought comes into my mind, he knows what you're going to think before you think it. It's pretty phenomenal. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Here, let me give you the first fill in the blank on your notes. So God's presence is an unavoidable reality. Here's the first idea under that thought. God knows everything about me. And this speaks of God's omniscience. That God is omniscient. Now, let me give you some cross references here. The best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. So you want to find where is that found elsewhere in Scripture? Well, it's found throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple. One is found in Matthew ten twenty nine through thirty. Are not the are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So it's, he's kind of like saying ah, they don't they don't seem to be of much value, and yet they seem to be pretty valuable to God because and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. In other words, God knows about the, the sparrow up here in the mountains that falls to the ground and dies. God knows about that. But he doesn't stop there and he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't look at me like that. I know you guys were thinking, well, that's an easy count for you, Pastor Ray. Anybody thinking that? Oh, you guys are out of here. That is so rude. That hurt me. That hurt me deep. Okay, I'll get over it. You would think that I would know the number of hairs on my head, but I don't. And uh, I said hair singular, not plural. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know, and yet God knows. God knows. God knows the hair, the number of hairs on my head and yours too. That's, a, that's pretty amazing. What does that say? 
He knows every detail of your life. He knows exactly what you need and what you don't need. He knows everything about you. It's almost frightening when you think about it. <gasps> We're going to talk about that part. Psalm 147, five, 4 through 5, it says, He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Oh, my goodness. My wife and I were watching this, uh, this special. We have some DVDs in our church library, and uh, I was giving them to uh, Don Miles. He gave me these, and we were watching them the other night, and he was talking about the, the, uh, the magnitude of space and creation. And, and I looked over at my wife while we were watching this. It was talking about the galaxies and the number of galaxies and how far out it goes. And Do you guys know how many stars are in just the Milky Way galaxy? A lot. <laughs> Who would say a lot? <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are there like uh, the Milky Way galaxy that we live in? Anybody know? A hundred billion. Somebody said a lot. A <laughs> hundred billion. As we were watching this, we both got nauseated. It sounds crazy, but we were almost kind of like, oh my goodness. When you begin to explore and think about creation, and that's a little bit of what this is saying. He determines the number of stars, so he knows how many stars, and then he gives them all their names. That's why he goes on and says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, our understanding is, it can be measured. I mean, you take a test and you either pass or fail and there's a limit to our knowledge. But it says his knowledge goes beyond measure. We cannot measure it, what he knows. And so, God knows everything about me. He's omniscient. Let's read verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Literally, the word presence here is his face. The Hebrew word means his face. Everywhere I go, I see his face. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the upper, uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Stop there. This, this next section, verses 7 through 12, give us another attribute of God, another part of his nature. God is always there for me. This is his, that he is omnipresent. So he's not only omniscient, but he's omnipresent. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then the writer goes on and talks about though the, though the earth gives way, and it talks about almost being in an earthquake situation or a tsunami, he says, God's right there with me to take care of me. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24 says this, am I a God at hand? In other words, he said, aren't I with you? Declares the Lord, and not a God far away. No matter where you go, I am with you. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. 
Think about that just for a minute. He's, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. God is always there for me. He is here this morning. When you leave here and you're in your car, he is there with you in your car. When you get home, he is there. No matter where you are, he is there. That's what the Bible says. Acts 17, 28, it says, In him we live, we move, we have our being. Do something for me if you would, please. Take a deep breath. One, two, three. Hold it. Exhale. The only way that you could take that breath is because of him. In him we live, we move, we have our being. Our very existence is dependent upon him. Your heart beats because of him. Everything we do is dependent upon God. He is the supplier of life. And so the Bible is clear about that. Let's read verses 13 through 18 as we continue through this text. For you form my inward parts. What is he saying there? You form my inward parts. He, he's, he created our personalities. In other words, uh, some of you are thinkers. Some of you are feelers. Isn't that interesting? And then some of you are real people-oriented. You like being around people, and others of you are real task-oriented. And then some of you aren't orient, oriented to, to anything. I mean, just like we can't, we can't figure you out. Actually, that's not true. Those are kind of gener- generalities. They're kind of broad. But when we look at the uniqueness of our personalities, that's God. It was God. It says, for you form my inward parts, personality, who I am, why I have certain likes and dislikes. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The idea is that it's like the the very hands of God was in your mother's womb, knitting you together, putting you together. It's, It's a phenomenal thought that he's thinking, he's reflecting on, he's meditating on. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the sea. Now, this next verse is is particularly important. This would be one of those verses, I pretty much just underline the whole chapter, but this verse would be one that you would want to underline. This is a pretty significant verse, and I'll I'll tell you why. I'll read it, and then you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. The Hebrew word for unformed substance, anybody know? It is embryo, fetus. So at conception, that's what it's saying. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written... Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see what he's saying here? From conception. That one verse, he takes you from conception all the way throughout your life to the end of your life. He knows the number of days. So what is that that telling us? From conception to the last breath, God is in charge. He creates, he ordains, he sustains, he upholds you. His power overshadows every second of your life. And here's the ethical implication. It's the reason why abortion in active euthanasia is wrong. Right there, based on that verse. That's not your call. That's not your call to take a life. Uh, the, the, when a child is conceived in the womb, 
And, and it's not your call whether, you know, as far as it relates to if you're going to take your own life. That's God's call. He's the one that numbers our days. Pretty significant. Pretty important. Dr. Kevorkian was wrong. I think he's passed on now. And, uh, but uh, that's where we get uh, that. And, of course, it's, uh, you see it throughout Scripture. There's verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Many believe that this is the climax right here of this psalm. And because he already talked about sleeping and awaking and all this. And then he goes, if I were to awake, he's actually talking about many of the uh, commentators and theologians say he's talking about death because he's saying it again. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. And the same idea, same concept is found in Psalm 17, 15. Let me read it. David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. In other words, when I die. So I might go through the darkest of days, but you are always there with me no matter how dark the days are because you make them light. And even when I face the darkest of days that I face death, when I awake, death is nothing more than going asleep and waking up and I will be in your presence. I will see your face. In fact, he says, As for me, I shall behold your face. In righteousness, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Oh, it's, it's awesome what he's saying there. And so here's the next, uh, next point. God is powerfully at work in me. Next fill in the blank. So he's omnipotent. So God's presence is an unavoidable reality. God knows everything about me. He's omniscient. God is always there for me. He's omnipresent. God is powerfully at work in me. He's omnipotent. Job says, 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Luke one thirty seven. for nothing will be impossible with God. So that's the God that you put your faith in. Nothing is impossible for God. Are you facing impossibilities in your life? He is unlimited in his power. And he can calm the storm or he can calm you in the midst of the storm. Either way, he's in control. So he is infinite in wisdom, perfect in love, unlimited in power. That's it. I mean, we could stand for closing prayer right there. That would be enough. If you took the implications of just what we've talked about here thus far, that would be enough. The problem is is that too often this is just a concept and not a reality. And so we've got to work it deep into our hearts. What is it that you do in your life through, under the title of spiritual disciplines that would help to get these truths deep down into your heart and life? Because if you could, I mean, you would be unshakable, unbreakable, unstoppable in life. I mean, you would have exactly what you need. C.S. Lewis says, as it relates to, to this, he says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. And so God's presence is an unavoidable reality, but it's also an unbearable threat. I'm going to show you that because if you dissect some of the Hebrew words, the original text is in Hebrew, you begin to see that David is grappling with something deep in his heart as he's working through God's presence. Um, Came across a story, you've heard it before, I've shared it a few times here. A burglar had done an excellent job of casing the house When the family left on vacation, he knew his heist would be easy. He entered the house just like planned, but was startled 
by an unsuspected voice. It said, Jesus sees you. He initially panicked but realized nobody could be home. This voice repeated the phrase and he shined his flashlight in the general direction and to his delight it was nothing more than a talking parrot. He relaxed and turned on the main light switch and to his horror he saw a huge Doberman pincher crouched in the corner. Then came the voice of the parrot again. Sick him, Jesus. We have that concept sometimes when we have this initial encounter with God. It's almost like God, that God's after us. We almost have this Santa Claus idea. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows, you know, you better be good. You know, it talks about how don't be pouting. You know that song? I was going to try to sing it, but I forgot it all of a sudden. I started jumping ahead to the, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because Jesus is going to get you. <laughs> we kind of have that idea. We have that crazy idea that he's out, he's going to get us. And, and you know what? It's kind of true, really. Your initial encounter with God should create a little bit of a stir. I've got to tell you a story that happened just last night. <laughs> my, uh, where's my sister? Is she here in this service? She's sitting right in the back. Okay, there she is right back there. <laughs> I laughed so hard after this. My, the front, our front porch, it's kind of dark as you kind of come into the, kind of the, the front entryway there. And it was already after dark. And so it was really dark. And Nancy turned on the light and there was no light. So I need a new light bulb. She goes to the store to get a new light bulb. She comes back. So I'm out there standing on this uh, uh, chair putting in the new light bulb. And it's really dark. Can't see anything. And so here comes my sister and her son come walking up. <laughs> it couldn't have happened at a better time. So they're walking up. I see them get out of their car, and I'm putting in the light bulb. The light hasn't come on yet. We haven't turned it on, but I'm putting it on. As soon as they get almost to step up onto the porch, I go, and they jump just like some of you just did. (laughs) Actually, it was so funny because because that's what she did. They went like this. They were kind of walking up there, and and I go, they go. They did one of these dances. I laughed so hard. It was so funny. And they both wet themselves. But, uh, no, I don't think they did. But, uh, but man, that was, that was worth it. That was a little joy last night. I laughed so hard because of their response. And um, why did I share that? Uh, because it was fun and I'm still laughing about it, I guess. Actually, I, I think that there's, there's certainly almost a fear and a fright that happens to us when we initially have that, that first encounter with God. Because in the light of who God is, it exposes darkness. And it freaks us out. I've seen this happen here at Desert Breeze that people initially, when they first start having that first encounter with God, it freaks them out. They don't want to have any part of it. It's almost like, ah, ooh, you know, it's just like they're out of there. And you almost get that same idea. And I gave you some cross-references here. For instance, a few weeks ago when we studied Moses, Moses has this encounter with God with a burning bush. And in Exodus 3, 6, and it says that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It was almost kind of like, oh, oh, oh my goodness. It was overwhelming him. Another cross-reference here, Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah has a... Is a has this vision of the Lord, and this is what he says, woe is me. Oh my goodness, I'm undone. I'm, I'm messed up. 
I'm doomed, is what he's really saying, for I am lost. And then I gave you another uh, illustration. You kind of see this throughout Scripture, Luke 5, 8, where Peter and the guys are fishing, and they fish all night, and they can't catch anything, and then Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw the net on the other side? And they're like, what? Okay. They throw it on the other side, and they pull up more fish than they can even think about it. And all of a sudden, and, and we all have these moments, all of a sudden on Peter it dawns on him, this is majesty. This is God in the flesh. Oh, my goodness. And he's like hitting the deck. He's, he's hiding his face. In fact, this is what it says in Luke 5, 8. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me. I am a sinful man. So you can kind of tell when someone's really encountering God, the first thing is that your sin is exposed. That's why in 1 John, we studied it a few weeks ago, where he talks about if we're going to have fellowship with God, remember how he talks about, hey, I want you to have fellowship, I want you to have this joy. Then he goes on and he talks about how God is light, in him is no darkness, and if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Why did he pop that one in there? And oh, by the way, if we, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is he talking about sin? Because that's what's exposed when we encounter the living God. He exposes our sin. And you get a little bit of a hint of that in David because David is not just giving details about God's attributes, but he's actually telling us how these attributes affect him. And David goes through three stages coming to terms with these attributes in these first 18 verses. Let me point them out to you. Here's the first stage. He feels a little bit suffocated, verses five through six. He uses the language. He says, you hem me in. I mean, did you find that a little bit peculiar? You hem me in. I feel like I'm hemmed in. And in fact, he says, I cannot attain it. Literally, the Hebrew says, I can't overcome this. I feel suffocated. And then the next stage is rebellious, verses seven through eight. Where should I flee from your presence? The word flee is the same word that's used in Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? Old Testament prophet? God told Jonah to go where? Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? No. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. And... Uh, and it says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord like you can outrun God. It's not going to happen. And yet it's the same word, flee, that's used, where should I flee? It has that idea of being just rebellious. It's like, <laughs> I, I want to get out of here. I don't like this. It troubles me. It bothers me. And then he moves stage three, ambivalent. It's this kind of double-mindedness as you work uh, through verses nine through 10. So you can see it somewhat progressive in the text. If I take wings, your hand shall lead me and hold me. In other words, he's kind of going like, hey, wait, 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 wait. If I want to be free, if I want to be free from his presence, I want to be free from his presence because he's like every time I turn around, he's always there. I feel suffocated. In fact, I don't even want him around. I want to do my own thing. I feel like I'm going to be freer without him around. That's a little bit of the idea here. But then as he's getting into this ambivalent idea, he begins to think about the implications. And he says, but if I'm free from his omnipresence, who will lead me and hold me? In other words, if I get off track, who's going to get me back on track? Who's going to guide me? And, and if I fall down, who's going to hold me and pick me back up? 
So he's kind of working through that. It's kind of really where we all have to come to in our own life. We desperately need to be loved. I mean, we really can't do life apart from being loved. And to be loved and not known, someone says that they love you, but they really don't know you, it's kind of shallow. Would you agree with that? That's the reason why there's really no such thing as love at first sight. Because you really can't love unless you really know someone. And the more you get to know someone, the more you can love them. And, and also, um, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. So it's kind of this dilemma, you know, I want people to know me, but then I don't want people to know me because if they really got to know me, oh, I don't like what I see in myself and I'm not sure that they're going to like what they see. And, and yet the Bible makes it very clear and what I think he's grappling with and what he comes to terms with, and this is what we all need to come to terms with, do you have any idea how much he knows you and he loves you? He fully knows you and yet, listen to me, he fully loves you. And oh my goodness, Nothing will bring greater healing to you than that. That will get rid of the pretense and the, and the game playing and the math. You don't need to. He, he loves you and accepts you and he loves you. Not because you're lovable, sorry, <laughs> but in order to make you lovable. So he accepts us as we are and he meets us right there and he brings us in and he redeems us and heals us and, and forgives us and loves us. Because we, How do we know that? Because of the cross. The cross tells us that. That I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die. He loved me so much, he wanted to die. In that, it creates unbelievable healing to our heart. Therefore, I mean, I don't have to play games with you. I don't have to try to be what I'm not. Because the one, the creator of the universe, knows me fully and loves me completely. Oh my goodness, you can rest in that. And that's where he goes. This is where this, this text really goes to as you kind of work through this, this unbearable thread. It goes to this unspeakable, glorious joy. And what he's coming to terms with is, wait a minute, his knowledge of me, that's not a bad thing. He's not using his knowledge against me. He's using his knowledge about me for me. God is for me and not against me. That's what he's coming to terms with. That's important for us to keep in mind. Oh, we desperately need his presence in our life. And, and when we begin to live in the reality of his presence, unspeakable, glorious joy. Why would I call it that? I believe that's, that's really what happens. I mean, when you, have, when you begin to get a glimpse of who it is that goes through your day with you, how much he loves you, and he knows you completely, you don't have to play any games. You just come to him and open your heart to him, and he is there, and he meets you right where you are unspeakable glorious joy unspeakable yeah you can't even put it into words there are times that I'm so overwhelmed by his presence I can't even tell I, I don't even know what to say I can't describe it to people and then glorious glorious means weight significance importance in other words if I have his favor if I have his love rejection from the world no big deal it it outweighs that the the glory of 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 the acceptance of people in this world or their rejection or or the success or failure or whatever it is i can face those things i can face temptation i can face the the harshest trials in my life even as he says oh my goodness when i'm going through the darkest of days it's like light with god god's with me because of this unspeakable glorious weighty 
Joy, joy, buoyancy. Life can push you down, but it can't keep you down because you have joy. We had in our first service uh, two gals, uh, Trish and Michelle Joy. They just lost their mom this last week, and they were sitting here. And, and this idea of joy is, is a buoyancy based on the eternal, the, the pleasures we find and the eternal privileges we have in God. And, and the opposite of joy is hopelessness. And, and the Bible says that we grieve, and they're certainly grieving, but not without hope and with, not without joy, not without a sense of his presence in their lives. And it gives us that buoyancy that no matter how hard life might try to beat us down, it can't keep us down because we have his presence, his unspeakable, glorious joy. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8, Peter is talking to second-generation Christians and so Peter, here's one, he's one that saw the majesty of the glory of Jesus. He saw the, the very presence of God through Jesus Christ, the incarnation. And so he's passing it on to them. And, and, and this is what he sees in them. He says, though you have not seen him as we have, but you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible, unspeakable, glorious joy. Why is that? Because they had a sense of the presence of God in their life. It wasn't just a concept. It was a reality. And it, it just, they could face anything. A verse that I shared with you last week in Psalm 1611. The psalmist says, you have showed me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. There's nothing, nothing in this world. There's no relationship. There's no amount of money. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy you like Christ. I wish Whitney Houston would have found that. And, and I don't know, I, I, some said she was a Christian. Obviously, she was really a struggling Christian. And I don't know why she died. I, I, know what the, I don't know what, I just saw it last night. And, but man, that's really young. And I know she struggled with drugs. Why? I mean, when you think of the fame and the fortune and all that she had, what an amazing voice. Oh my goodness, she'd send you through the rafters with her voice. And yet, why was there such discontent and restlessness? That's you. And that's me, apart from Jesus Christ. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in Him. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. There is a contentment, there is a completeness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here when we understand his presence in our life. Let me walk you through some of these ideas. God is intimately involved in my life. Verses 13 through 14. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Do you hear what he's saying there? It's amazing. He's just saying, I have dignity, value, and honor and worth because I am a unique, one-of-a-kind, original masterpiece of God to display the glory of God. And that's it's a phenomenal concept. This is what I'm going to have you do. Turn to the folks next to you and say, you're a walking billboard masterpiece of God to put on display the glory of God. Okay, I, I, that's too much to say. Okay. <laughs> okay, you, you, some of you are like, uh, uh, yeah, what, what was that first phrase there? Just turn to the person next to you and say, you are a masterpiece of God. Do that real quick and then go, Wow.
Or here's another one that you could say is, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and you know, when you looked in the mirror this morning, did you do that? Did you go, oh my goodness, look at you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are one hunk. Woo! Doyle Moody did say to me in the, uh, in the first service as I was coming up here, he says, you are one handsome guy. Didn't you, Doyle? And I wasn't sure if you are going to try to borrow some money from me or you were saying that because this is what it says in the Scripture. You were just quoting Scripture, weren't you? Don't do that again, okay? I'll point you out. No, that was good. I liked that. I appreciated that. I, I really felt much better since you told me that. I'm just giving him a bad time. Because he was giving me a bad time. Don't ever give me a bad time. Because I will give you a bad time in front of everybody. I'm kidding. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, just the implications when he's talking about that, God is intimately involved in my life. I know this. I know this because I experience it. Where are you, God? Oh, my goodness. Why did that happen? What is happening? I just feel like I'm just kind of stumbling around. (laughs) What's happening? He's involved in your life. He's active in your life, whether you can see him or not. God makes sense even when he doesn't make sense. But this doesn't make sense. I know. But it makes sense because God's word says it makes sense. And you're not going to make sense of it. That's what it's saying. That's what the Bible is saying. So you stand on the word of God and then you take it all the way back to the cross because the, the cross is the guarantee. To what extent can I take this? How far will he go? To the cross. He died for you. Okay, I'm taking it. I'm taking it to the bank. I'm going to live in the reality of it. This is, this is the authority. He wrote it down. He wrote it down in blood for you and I. That's how important it is to us. God is intimately involved in my life. The problem is that we become so preoccupied with looking for God in the extraordinary, we tend to miss him in the ordinary where he lives the most. There's a book that uh, I read through most of it. I've read read it in the past, and I started working through it a little bit because I was going to teach on this idea of God being everywhere because it's uh, by John Ortberg. It's God is closer than you think. And there's one section in here I just wanted to read to you. He calls it spiritual habituation. He says it's a problem that we have. He says psychologists who deal with the study of perception refer to a phenomenon called habituation. The idea is that when a new object or stimulus is introduced to our environment, we are intensely aware of it, but the awareness fades over time. So, for instance, when we first begin to wear a new wristwatch, we feel it on our wrist constantly, but after a while, we don't even notice that it's there. When people move into a new home, they generally have a list of things they must repair or remodel because the sight of them is intolerable. But five years later, yeah, yeah, they may still have the same list, but the lack of repair doesn't bother them anymore. So it's called spiritual habituation. We just kind of get used to it. So we kind of get used to the fact that we're living around, even in a setting like this, that you are sitting across someone who's been created in the image of God. They're image bearers, that they are walking billboard advertisements that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh my goodness, and we tend to take that stuff for granted. So God is intimately involved in my life. Here's the next thought. God can't take his eyes off of me or stop thinking about me. Now keep in mind, we're talking about this unspeakable glorious joy. This is what should send us through the roof if we really understand this and live in the reality of it. Verses 15 through 16, he said this, my frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
So God's eyes have been upon us, verses 17 through 18. How precious to me are your thoughts. They are more than the sand. The word precious, I mean, we throw that around in our, in our language, in our English language, and it doesn't really carry much weight. But here in the Hebrew, it carries tons of weight. It's used to mean gold or silver or sapphire as precious stones. And basically, he's just saying, of ultimate wealth. He's saying, this is of ultimate wealth. Your thoughts about me is of ultimate wealth, is what he's saying. And in fact, your thoughts about me, they're of ultimate wealth because they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. Do you have any idea the thoughts that he thinks about you? David goes from being threatened because God knows his thoughts to seeing the ultimate wealth of knowing God's thoughts about him. You've heard me say this many times before. If you had any idea what God thinks about you, feels about you, wants to do in your life, you wouldn't run from him. You would run to him. And in fact, that's all that you would need. If you looked into the face of God and begin to understand the thoughts that he has about you, you would see his eyes of adoration and admiration. He loves you. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, that is worth all the money in the world, more than all the money in the world. In fact, I have that. I don't need anything else because I have his favor. I can face anything because I have that. My acceptance, my security, my significance is in him. If I lose my job, my significance is in him. I'll find another job. He'll provide for me. He's my security. It doesn't matter what I face. Greater than all the wealth in this world is to see God looking at me with admiration, adoration in his eyes. The only eyes in the universe that matter are looking at you with adoration. When was the last time you, you got a glimpse, maybe through worship or through the study of God's word? Has it been a while? Sometimes it takes me a while even in Bible study just to get to that place where I'm getting a sense of, wow, God, I can't believe that you would even think those amazing thoughts about me, that you love me. Man, it makes all the difference in the world in how I deal with the issues of life. C.S. Lewis says, God has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. St. Augustine put it this way, God loves all of us as if there's only one of us. Is that what you think about when you spend time with God? You have an audience with the creator. You can share your heart with him. He wants you to connect with him. He's there for you. And because of these first two, this unspeakable glorious joy, this God is intimately involved in my life and God can't take his eyes off of me or stop thinking about me. Here's the third one. My darkest days are bright with him. Surely the darkness, darkness literally means, it has the idea, it's kind of speaking metaphorically, suffering, danger, disease, death, times of absolute terror. Surely the darkness shall cover me. Darkness is as light to you. Remember Psalm 23, 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Unspeakable, glorious joy. But the problem isn't with God on his side of the equation. It's really us. 
Next point, since God is everywhere, it is us who needs to show up. So how do we show up? Let's read the rest of the text. Now, this, this really gets wacko, okay? This gets crazy. And for years, I never really understood this because it almost seems like, oh, wow, he's, he's thinking these great thoughts and he kind of comes to the climax here where he says, when I awake, I will be with you forever and God, you're gonna take care of all my problems. You're, you're always with me. And then all of a sudden, you read verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Where'd that come from? Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Is he seeing things? He seems a little schizophrenic here. Now, this is what I love about the Psalms, because I think it's really describing you and I. I think that this is us. If we were really in touch with our feelings and our thoughts and how scattered they are and how they ride this roller coaster, I mean, he goes from this unbelievable, pleasant time of working through these issues to he's kind of getting to some root issues in his heart. He's kind of... Coming, coming to terms with the fact, hey, there's some injustice here, and I don't like what's going on, and God, strike these people dead. He says in verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete, complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he kind of resolves it here, and I think he's going to teach us something. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's talk about this just for a minute. I mean, it's so, it's so important for us that as we connect with God, we work through the issues and our sins in our life, but that we be completely honest with Him. You know, uh, the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10. This is what I found in my own life. A sure way to promote God's absence is to avoid silence and solitude, keeping my life full of noise and even sedated with the activities of my life. If I don't spend time really focusing in on what in the world is going on inside of me, I tend to play a lot of games with people. So there's got to be those times in my life where I really reflect and think, what is happening? Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. So it's important. He's near to those who call on him, but those who call on him in truth, honesty. I think that David's being honest. I think he's getting down to the deep issues of his heart. This is what troubles him the most. And so he shares it with God in the midst of this connection with God how many know what I mean? It's on the notes when I say, find your red dot. Anybody? I've taught this before. Find your red dot. You are here. You need to know where you are before you try to get where you should be, where God wants to take you. If you're going to get beyond the, whatever it is that you're experiencing, the negative emotions, you've got to know exactly where you are and what is it that's causing those negative emotions. So it's like, it's like looking for the red dot you are here on a shopping mall directory. If you go to a new shopping mall and you find the directory, it says, you are here, red dot. Okay, now let's see what store do I need to get to. It's almost kind of when we're talking, we're interacting with God. That's what God has to do. We have to be completely honest so that God can, listen, God will not meet you where you pretend to be. He will only meet you where you really are. And so we need to be honest. God is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. There's an interesting movie, um, it's called A Beautiful Mind, taken uh, from the book by that title, 
It's about John Nash, true story, Nobel Prize winner. And uh, he struggled with dis, uh, delusional paranoia. Brilliant man. But in the movie, there's a quote in that movie that I thought was really good. He says in the movie, he says, we all hear voices. We just need to decide which ones we are going to listen to. Well, that's true. I mean, we are bombarded with all kinds of negative voices. Our voice and then the enemy's voice, and then God's voice, and which one is God's voice, and what is God saying to me, and, and then we got the voices of people in our lives, and from our past, and all this stuff going on in our lives, and so we need to, to be quiet, be still, and know that he is God. God will meet you right where you are, not where you pretend to be, and so we've got to search me, O oh God, and know my heart. That's what we've got to do. We come to him with our hearts open, and I, I, I do this regularly, consistently, every day. God, God, my, my life is open before you. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known, and there's no healing in hiding. Jesus fully knows and fully loves, freeing you from pretense. Now, sometimes I have to have people from the outside. Sometimes my wife has to do this or people that I work with. I've had people say, hey, it sounds like you're really angry. No, I'm not angry. Oh, I guess I am because we kind of live blinded to this, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, search me, oh God. Am I angry and I'm kind of in denial? I'm not really in touch with that? What's happening? And then he says, test me. Woo. When was the last time you said, test me, God? Please test me. <laughs> test me and know my thoughts. Why? Why would he say, know my thoughts? What dominates your thoughts? I could tell you what's troubling you, what's dominating your thoughts. That's why he's saying, test me. Let this stuff come to the surface. Let me begin to see, what am I worried about? What am I thinking about? And see if there is any grievous way in me. God, show me ways that I am denying your love. Look for ways you're denying his love. If you have inordinate, there's some things you should be concerned about. And I say inordinate because it's excessive worry, bitterness, impatience, anxiety, envy, unkindness. If that's going on in your life, it's because at that moment you're denying his love. There's something that you're pushing back. There's something at that moment that's more important to you than God. As I said earlier, St. Augustine put it very clearly in his book, Confessions. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in him. So this is what I do. When I spend time with the Lord and I'm reading through his word, and he, God always meets me right where I am, but, but I've got to be there first to say, okay, I'm fully in the dot, God. This is what I'm experiencing. And so I get in touch with my restlessness. Why am I so restless? What's going on? Why did I lash out at the kids? Why was I defensive when my wife tried to point something out to me? What's happening? Why am I so mean to my wife or my spouse or my husband? Why, why? why would you treat them like that? What's going on? There's something restless inside of you. Otherwise, if you're walking in the Spirit and you know who it is that walks with you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness is yours. So the Bible says, so we've got to let God meet us in that restlessness and then lead me in the way everlasting. Growth begins to happen when I open my heart for God to meet me specific to where I am most restless. Now, some of us, it's going to take a while. I've been working on this for a while in my life, so I kind of know. It's still kind of in layers, and so I've got to allow those layers to be pulled back. But if you've accumulated a whole lifetime of this, it takes a while because there's a lot of layers there. But you've got to keep working through that so God can meet you there and touch you and minister to your need 
Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. We're going to take communion this morning. This is a great opportunity for you to be able to meet God and allow him to meet you right where you are. For those of you that are going to be passing out the communion trays, you can find your way to the back and be ready to pass that out. We're going to show a video in a minute. And, uh, and you can pass it out during that time. Let's just open our hearts to God just for a moment. Where are you? Where is that restlessness within your own heart? God, show that to us this morning. As we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, we want to encounter you. We want to know you. So God, I pray this morning that for those that are feeling lonely, that you would be their companion. For those that feel afraid, that they would experience courage from your presence. Those that are being overwhelmed by temptation, that they would, they would know your strength and the satisfaction that's found in you. Those that are down, that you would comfort them. Those that are confused, that they would see you as their counselor. Those that are experiencing overwhelming guilt and shame, that you would see, that they would see your forgiving hand, that your forgiveness of them brings healing to our souls. So God, we desperately need you. And as David said, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. They're gonna be passing out the communion elements, um, so hang on to them. I'll walk you through the process. If you're not a believer, just let it go by. You can become a believer this morning by acknowledging your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. And you can take communion with us. We'd love to do this, do that with you. And this is a very sacred time for us. But just hang on to it. Watch this video as we reflect on what we've just learned this morning. No one has ever loved you more. And no one will ever love you more than Jesus. How do we know what we talked about is true? Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? That's amazing. That's amazing. Rest. Rest in him. Rest in him. You can rest. You don't need to be stressed because the economy goes up and down. Don't be stressed out over relationships. You can rest in him. Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, eat this in remembrance of me. This represents my broken body for you. You'll see that there's two cups there, so take the top off and grab the bread. Let's eat it together. That same night, he, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant. This represents my blood shed for you. Think about that. His blood shed for you. He loves you. He said, drink in remembrance of me. Let's do that together. Would you stand with me? Thirteenth chapter of Hebrews, verses five and six, it says this. This is what you need to walk out of here with. He will never 
ever, 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 literally in the Greek, that's what it says. He will never, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. You have infinite wisdom, perfect love, and unlimited power with you, watching over you, directing your life. And he will take you through this life into the next to be with him for all eternity. So you can rest in him. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.